Most people are aware of the Nuremberg trials, and there has been a tradition of regarding them as a great exercise of justice by the Allies. The truth is very different. In the late 1930s, the Germans brought turmoil to Europe, and many people who had suffered as a result believed that the Germans should be held to account, both those who had led their country and those who had committed individual and often outrageously cruel acts. Churchill, with Stalin's support, wanted to have the major perpetrators shot pretty well on sight, but in this he found himself opposed to the American president, initially Roosevelt, but then Truman. The Americans believed that justice should not only be done, but should also be seen to be done, and for this to happen they believed, and insisted, that judicial trials be held. These trials would be an opportunity for the crimes of the defendants to be paraded before the world, and when that was done, the justice of the verdicts and the punishments would be clear to all. Now, Churchill's opposition was not unreasonable. Fair trials would not guarantee guilty verdicts. There can be technical reasons why a defendant must be acquitted, and if this happened, and if the defendant were in fact guilty, then he would escape. It was also the case that trials took a great deal of effort to stage. The first Nuremberg trial, of only 24 defendants, sat for nearly a year, heard 236 witnesses, and in evidence it accepted 5,000 documents and 200,000 statements. Britain was bankrupt. It had fielded only two war crimes investigation teams, one of which complained that it did not have a working motor car, and taking a significant part in this effort was unthinkable. And the number of potential defendants was so huge that by some accounts it would take 20 years or more before all the potential defendants had had their day in court. Even in 1945, this did not appear politically acceptable, and as it turned out, the political will to hold trials evaporated so quickly that the last trial was held in 1949. However, the American view won the day, in large part because they made it clear that they would proceed whatever their allies did. Britain and Russia and France decided it was better just to tag along. A conference was duly held in London in 1945 to decide how matters should proceed, and on the 8th of August that conference issued what is known as the London Charter. This charter established the International Military Tribunal, the IMT, which would convene in November of that year as a court at Nuremberg. It was decided that the law under which the trials should be held was international law. This is understandable. American or British law was, of course, out of the question. The Germans had no duties under the Allies' laws. German law, too, could not be used, since most, if not all, actions of the defendants were lawful under German law. The only law available, therefore, was international law, and this, in July 1945, meant principally the Geneva and Hague Conventions. These conventions dealt principally with how wars should be conducted, how soldiers should act, how they should be treated if captured, 
what an occupier could and could not do in occupied territory. If there was a transgression of the laws, legal action could be taken against the offending state, and that state could be ordered to make appropriate recompense. This did not suit the Allies. They wished to hold individual Germans guilty of crimes. It is true that in June 1945 the British had authorised a military tribunal to apply international law in the trial of guards at the Belsen concentration camp. But in August that trial had not yet taken place, and because of the limitations of international law, which we shall examine in a moment, the outcome of that trial was far from certain. Accordingly, the London Charter declared the existence of four new crimes in international law. I shall describe each briefly, making a few comments as we go. Waging a War of Aggression This was a charge that the defendants had engaged in the planning, preparation, initiation and waging of wars of aggression. A criticism of this charge is that any definition of a war of aggression is highly subjective. Most people who fight wars do so to defend something, be it their freedom, security, religion or way of life, and they do this even when invading another's territory. But even if a war of aggression can be said to exist, it would be very tempting to think that the United States of America, which became a country only by the expansion of the Pilgrim Fathers and their successors over an entire continent, had been a serial wager of such wars, and if that were the case, then one might wonder by what right the Americans charged others with that offence. War Crimes the IMT defined war crimes as violations of the laws or customs of war, and the charge against the defendants was that they had killed, ill-treated and tortured civilians. Violations of the laws or customs of war have been war crimes from time immemorial, and the alleged crimes had been formal offences since the adoption of the Hague Convention of 1907. So, why was it necessary to define existing crimes as crimes under the Charter? The only reason must be to ensure personal responsibility of the perpetrators. Under Article 3 of the Hague Convention, the German government remained liable to all those who had suffered in the concentration camps or who had lost property without proper cause. But the Allies wished to bring a wide range of individuals within the pyramid of command to account. For that, they needed a new law, and this was it. Crimes Against Humanity the IMT defined crimes against humanity in Chapter 2, Article 6c as murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population. We have already seen that the murder of the civilian population of an occupied territory was always accepted as a war crime, being a violation of the laws or customs of war but this article extended the range of that offence to murder, and so on, of one's own population. The indictment attempts a justification of this extension. It explains that these methods and crimes constituted violations of international conventions, of internal penal laws, of the general principles of criminal law, as derived from the criminal law of all civilised nations, and were involved in and part of a systematic course of conduct.
Now, the unfortunate fact is that in August 1945 there were no international conventions which prohibited a state from murdering its own citizens or treating them in the ways described in Article 6. This was the problem which nearly defeated the British at the Belsen trial, where the deaths of thousands of Germans were of no judicial interest to the tribunal, except to the extent that they showed a pattern of ill-treatment of 12 Allied citizens. Similarly, there is the apparently reassuring reference to the criminal law of all civilised nations. But is this not just waffle? What is that law? Where can this criminal law be found? Robert Jackson, the chief prosecutor appointed by the United States, interpreted this reference as meaning that we propose to punish acts which have been regarded as criminal since the time of Cain, and have so been written in every civilised code. It's a flowery expression regarded as criminal since the time of Cain, but the incontrovertible fact is that it could mean anything. Indeed, it is almost as if the draftsman had had in mind the Nazi law of the 28th of June 1935, which changed the German penal code and which states any person who commits an act which is deserving of penalty according to the fundamental conceptions of the penal law and sound popular feeling shall be punished. By passing this law, the Allies gave themselves the power, as the Germans had done ten years previously, of punishing anyone they liked for anything they wished. That is not a good basis for the practice of justice. Conspiracy Being party to a common plan or conspiracy to commit the crimes set out in the Nuremberg Charter. The notion of conspiracy is one which can be applied with relative ease to minor crimes. Alfred buys a gun for Bill to hold up the bank while Charlie drives the getaway car. All are guilty of armed robbery. But when one talks of a large organisation, and especially an organisation as large as a government, difficulties arise. Everyone within that organisation is working to achieve the chosen ends. And in that sense, they have a common purpose, and may be said to conspire. But not everyone necessarily knows what all those chosen ends are, and some, indeed many, may even be greatly opposed to one or all of them. In these circumstances, it is difficult to see how a person could be said to have conspired, unless merely by being a member of the organisation he is guilty. In that sense, the assistant doorman is as guilty as the minister. And now I want to make four general observations. Firstly, it might perhaps be accepted that to have laws such as those which I have just described is a good thing, but it is generally accepted that laws should not be retroactive. These new laws were promulgated in August of 1945. The offences which they sought to punish had been committed before May 1945, when the war in Europe ended. Should someone be convicted, and perhaps even be hanged, under a law which has been dreamt up the day after his arrest. Such a punishment may be popular, may be politically expedient, 
but it strikes at the very heart of what we consider to be fair. Churchill had a point. Secondly, Article 19 of the London Charter states that the IMT shall not be bound by technical rules of evidence. This has as its target hearsay evidence. Hearsay evidence is when Alfred tells the court that he heard Bill admit to murder. Such a statement is evidence that Alfred heard Bill say the words, but it is not admissible as evidence that Bill admitted to the murder. If Bill wishes to admit to murder, he must come to the court and say so himself. This is a rule which is applied in British and American courts, and indeed in the courts of most other countries, because it is considered necessary if the defendants are to be given a fair trial. It was not to be applied at Nuremberg. Why not? Superior Orders Article 8 of the IMT Charter specifically stated that acting on the orders of a government did not free a defendant from responsibility. The inclusion of this clause was intended to eliminate the defence of superior orders. I was only following orders. This was nothing short of hypocrisy. From 1913, the British Army's Manual of Military Law had stated, Members of the armed forces who commit such violations of the recognised rules of warfare as are ordered by their government or by their commander are not war criminals and cannot therefore be punished by the enemy. This was, unfortunately, precisely the position which the Allies wanted to prevent their German defendants from adopting, and in April 1944, when the outcome of the war in Europe seemed certain, and the probability that the Allies might wish to hold war crimes trials of German defendants was growing greater, the British passed Amendment No. 34 to the manual. This amendment stated that committing a war crime does not confer upon the perpetrator immunity from punishment by the injured belligerent. That is, it reversed the previous position of the British government. It was a naked vault face, but for the British, and indeed American, governments, it had the advantage of reducing the danger of embarrassment at the forthcoming trials. And lastly, impartiality. If the public are to have trust in the findings of a court, any court, a key test is whether the court is impartial. The Allies had chosen eight senior jurists to serve as judge and jury, but all these judges came from the nations of the conquerors and were not, therefore, obviously impartial. There was no reason why judges could not have been chosen from neutral nations, Switzerland, say, or Ireland, both countries with robust legal systems and an independent judiciary. Indeed, the tribunal would have gained great attraction with the German public, arguably the people most needing to be impressed, had even one German judge been included. The rules which established the IMT and which governed how it would operate were considered by many to be deeply flawed. Professor Hans von Hentig, a German criminal psychologist who had emigrated to the United States, wrote to President Truman, There is not a professor of constitutional or criminal law in this country or any other civilized state who would not ask you urgently to have those rules reconsidered. They are opposed to all legal standards. 
More damning criticism still was to come from a most senior source. A person no less elevated than Harlan Stone, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, referred to the trials as a high-grade lynching party. Stone, of course, was referring to the rules and procedures under which the court operated, but at a lower level, minor officials were doing their best to prove him right in the detail. Benjamin B. Ferentz was a senior prosecutor at one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials. He was later to become a noted American lawyer. In his old age, he made an astonishing and deeply disturbing series of admissions. In an interview with the Washington Post and published on the 24th of July 2005, he said, You know how I got witness statements? I'd go into a village where, say, an American pilot had parachuted and been beaten to death, and line everyone up against the wall. Then I'd say, Anyone who lies will be shot on the spot. It never occurred to me that statements taken under duress would be invalid. This was an admission to pervert the course of justice made by a senior prosecutor. At the very least, it indicates that the prosecution was motivated more by a desire for conviction than to see justice done. In that interview, Ferenc also admitted that he had sent SS prisoners to camps of displaced persons, where they were to be questioned, a process which he expected would lead to them being killed. He admitted to having no fewer than six people murdered in this manner. Could he have hinted to others that they too might also be treated in a similar manner if they did not do what he wanted? Were his subordinates aware of how he obtained statements, and did they follow the example he set? Was he the only bad apple in the whole of this barrel? The defendants before the Nuremberg court may well have been guilty of terrible acts. They may have richly deserved the punishments meted out to them. But that is not the question before us. If we wish to be called civilised, we must be just, and we must act justly. Were the Nuremberg trials just? You must form your own view. 